it's my job to know I'm beautiful. It's no one else's job. You don't need to agree with me. I don't care whether you agree with me or not. It doesn't impact my day until I take that opinion inwards. Welcome to Little Revolutions, brought to you by Frida. This is a series of conversations about the double standards, societal problems, and systemic injustices that feel bigger than any one of us. Every week, we talk to someone who's questioning the norms and rewriting the script. They're activists and politicians, artists and athletes, and many, many more. Each one of our guests talks us through relatable little revolutions they're making in their own lives and the ways in which we can all be changemakers, whoever we are. On today's episode, we talk to life coach and author Michelle Elman. Social media has so much to say about how we look and what we post, and Michelle and I talked about how to hold on to your mental health and sense of self while remaining very online. Does this feel like a throwback to book publicity for you? Yeah, but to be honest, I still do it even when I'm like out of book publicity anyway, because I do so much of it via social media that it's like a regular thing. This is a lot more high tech equipment than normal. <laughs> it's it's just a phone and also it feels so much more high tech. Yeah. So I'm sure you've been introduced in lots of different places, but the way we like to do it here is we don't define people. We let people define themselves. So how would you like to introduce yourself? So I'm Michelle Alman and I'm a life coach, an author, a public speaker. And at the moment, the thing I'm most passionate about talking about is boundaries in general, but more specifically in your love life. And I always found that was the area of my life I struggled most with boundaries. I'm a recovered people pleaser. Or if I was being really honest, I'm a recovered pushover. And that's what has created my passion topic is because I was so bad at it and figured out a way to set some boundaries and want to share that gift with everyone else. That is a true gift because I feel like most of us are probably going to be on the journey of figuring out boundaries as long as we have relationships because I feel like every new relationship you're like oh here we are again here's this conversation I didn't want to have it. Absolutely and no matter how many times you do it there are still going to be those times I'm like oh I don't want to do it maybe I should just brush it under the carpet ignore it and you just know with experience that never works out very well and what usually ends up happening for me at least is you end up exploding over something that is completely unrelated because you've not used your voice when you should have. I love the framing also of using your voice which is one I've never thought about in that context where it's it's not just expressing your needs, it's also using your voice, which is, it's hard. Yeah, it really is. I mean, if it was easy, I wouldn't have needed to write a book about it, or two books about it now, but it's because we are conditioned and trained very much to be people pleasers, to make everyone else's life easy, and to make their life more convenient, that we never think about putting ourselves first. Absolutely. Um, so the premise for this series that we're doing is very much, it came for me from a very personal place of, as a person of color, as a woman, as an immigrant, as a person with disability, like lots of different parts of my life, I felt like I was constantly being put into very, very small, tiny boxes of like what was acceptable for me to be. And it would come up in like lots of, unexpected expected constant ways of like oh you're scary because I was being assertive or oh like you shouldn't be saying this or you're wrong and then the man sitting next to me would repeat word for word what I had said and be like oh that's such a great idea like well done um and I, I would always hear these interviews watch these interviews where you'd see people talking about the the tough stuff and then being on the other side and like being 
incredibly successful, incredibly happy, all that, like beautiful life, they've reached it. And the in-between, which is where the living happens, at least in my in my experience, is what we don't often talk about. It's just like the day-to-day stuff of like, it's also hard, right? Like it's yeah. hard and let's just own that and accept that. And the reason I wanted to talk to you was because I feel like you, you embody it and you talk about it so much in two really interesting, important spaces, which is one in our relationship with our bodies and in setting boundaries with the world around us. And in this moment in time, so many of us have this constant conversation of like how we're presenting ourselves online and and negotiating the boundaries there and also negotiating our own relationships with our bodies. So to bring it back to you, when we were learning about you and your work um, or digging in more because we, we knew about your work, you know, there's, there's lots of ways in which you're tra- traditionally defined in the media where it's about the 15 surgeries you had, living with hydrocephalus, having a brain tumor, all of that. Um, and... The thing that stayed with me was, I imagine you've had to be very aware of your body your entire life and the scars on your body as well and the expressions of the experiences you've had, right? And I'm very curious about growing up, what was your relationship with your body like? Well, I actually think there is a tipping point where you grow up not conscious of your body. So like there were times I was having baths with my brother who was a year younger than me. We both have different stomachs. Mine was covered in scars. His wasn't. I knew there was a difference, but I probably never even consciously recognized the difference in the same way that he had short hair and I had long and I didn't think twice about it. And then there was a day when I was 11 where I became conscious of it. And it's like you can't switch that switch back. You can't go back to wishing you could just exist in your body without being conscious of the fact that, oh, not only is my body different, but my body, my difference is bad and is ugly. And all of these words that everyone labels, and it was never said in a word to me, it was very much said in stares. So it was the first time I was wearing a bikini and it was the parents of the kids, much more so than the kids themselves, staring at my stomach with these looks of pity and shock and horror, because obviously, having that many surgery scars on a levian world makes sense to me now that you would look at that child and go oh poor you it probably was a look of compassion a look of oh i i feel really bad for you but when someone's staring at you and they're not saying anything and you're not sure why i interpreted it as an embarrassing thing like why was everyone staring at me i don't want this attention um and i think yeah in the media especially like if or if I get hired for a panel, I do sometimes feel it of like, oh great, I'm the tick fox, I'm the mixed race, chronically ill, plus size person being put on this panel because everyone else on this panel isn't. And it's funny because until I became a a public figure in some sense of the word, I never saw myself as a bunch of labels, but then I couldn't unsee it in the same way that I couldn't unsee the scars in my body because everyone else introduced me that way and also categorized me that way both in my bio both in how I was introduced and also when I was actually sitting on a panel I would be asked very different questions to what everyone else was asked one of the frustrations I had and also epiphanies I had was the reason I thought my love life was meant to be horrible because of the way I looked and because of my body and because of the scars and because of being plus size was because every time I sat on a panel one of the first questions I would be asked if it was a love life panel would be have you ever been body shamed have you ever been fetishized and 
no one else was being asked that question. So within my book, I say it wasn't what my answer that was the problem. It was that if you ask me that question, there is no way I can give you a true answer. Because for me to tell you about a time in my life I was body shamed on a date, I have to go back until I was 18 years old. I'm 29 now. I have 11 years of positive dating experience I could have spoken to you about. But if you ask that question, you're forcing me to go back to the one negative experience I've had. And when I tell that story, it creates a warped perception because it makes you think my dating life is horrible. When, as I said, one instance in the last 11 years. And so I just think we need to be more conscious of how we ask the questions, not just, it's not always about the answers. If you ask a question that is always emphasizing the negative experiences, that's the picture we're gonna paint. I agree with you so much. Just with all of that, it is also very much my experience in lots of spaces of just defi being defined by either your otherhood or the, the labels that are bad, air quoting bad, um, or the things that are potentially different about us. And it's really interesting where for me, like a light bulb went off when you talked about your brother's hair being shorter than yours and how there's a moment where you started to associate weight with your differences and weight, associating weight, I mean, like the there was a heft to it of like, oh, this is potentially something that the world sees as not just different, but different in a bad way. Um, and I'm curious about, was there a turning point for you when you realized, okay, I don't, or were you always at the point where you were like, that's how the world sees me, but I see me as me? Like, was What was your experience or your journey through that? I think the greatest gift of my scars was that I didn't see my weight as as big a problem as the world saw it, because I thought, because so probably when it comes to weight, a lot of the comments that were made to me were more conscious. When it comes to my scars, it was a lot of stares. No one said anything though, because people become very awkward around it. But when it comes to weight, people actually do say things. And I remember when I was 15 years old, one of my mum's friends who saw me, we were, we were all sunbathing, I had my top still on, um, they all went topless and they were like, oh, Michelle, join us. And I was like 15, quite insecure in my body, didn't really want to do it, but then felt pressured to, took my top off. And the first thing she said was, you know, you should really lose some weight, boys aren't gonna like you at, at your size. And what I mean by my scars were almost a gift was my first thought when, was, you think they're gonna have a problem with my weight? Have you not seen their scars all over my stomach? Because I can't change my scars. I can change my weight, even if it made me miserable, even if I had to lose my mental health in the process, I could change my weight, but I can't change my scars. So in that way, it was almost a saving grace. But I also think the other fortunate thing, which is just probably something very intrinsic in me, is I find conversations about weight so mind-numbingly boring. And so the pivotal point for me was when I was 15 years old and I went to a boarding school. So I had breakfast, lunch and dinner with the same group of girls every single day. And when it got to a certain age, maybe about 13, 15, every conversation would be going on the going on the next day, how are you gonna eat, what you're gonna eat, how you're gonna stop eating, all of these things. I remember there was one lunch I was sitting there and I was like, we just talk about the same thing over and over again. And the ironic thing is no one's losing weight. We're just talking about it. And it's so boring. And I, it was that moment that I had just had that lunch and then I went for a PE lesson and came out the um, PE class and 
my friend saw her reflection in the mirror, which wasn't even a mirror, it was just the door that was reflecting her. And she was like, oh, my thighs are so ugly. And the first thing I did was look at her thighs. And those two conversations happening to get back to back, I was like, why am I spending my whole life talking about how ugly I am? Because all it does is draw more attention to the body part you want no one to notice. And it was that moment where I was just like, I don't want to spend my whole life talking about diets. I don't want to spend my whole life talking about my body. I'm bored of this conversation. Like, this doesn't sound very body positive, but at the time I was a 15 year old who just had this thought that, so what if I'm ugly? Like. Ugly people live fulfilled lives. Ugly people can go on to have leadership roles and have families and fall in love and all of these things. Being ugly actually doesn't limit you in any way unless you spend your entire, t like all your time and energy on trying to change that. What if I just accepted I was ugly and moved on? And so I did that. And what was really strange was within the next two years in school, I went into sixth form the following year, and the next two years in school, I got nearly every leadership position I could possibly get to the point where I nearly failed my actual A-levels because I was, I was in so many positions in the school. And I, like I said before, found my voice and was like, wow, not only does it not matter that I'm ugly, which I don't believe anymore, but I'm an incredible leader. I still had to put myself forward in it order to be chosen. And if I had been so focused on my parents, I truly believe I wouldn't have put myself forward. That's amazing that also you can link it so clearly to that moment when when you recognize that you were you were doing that to yourself a little bit of like focusing on the thing that you you thought you didn't want the world to focus on and then making that what your story was. I imagine everyone's journey is up and down, but has it been a, a path forward where after that you had decided that you you accepted your body as it was and there was no going back? Or was it a continual process for you where you've had to like go through iterations with your relationship with yourself, basically? I basically stopped thinking about my body after that point. I actually only really started thinking about my body again once I launched Scar Not Scared, which was this online campaign. It was actually just a picture I put up of me wearing a bikini for the first time since I was 10 years old. And I hesitate to say this because every time I've said it before, people say it's unrealistic and it just doesn't happen for everyone else like that. But the truth is, it has been constantly uphill since then. And there are very few things mental health wise, I say there's like a complete upward trajectory. But because I think my path into body positivity wasn't trying to love myself, was simply trying to just move on. I wasn't even trying to accept what I looked like really. I just moved on. It was like, I'm not thinking about that anymore. I'm not talking about it. If you wanna talk about my body, I'm not even engaging in these conversations. It was as if I was just like, this is something I can't change. I'm moving on. The only thing that really changed anything about it was when I started saying this online and people would be like, that can't happen because I used to say like, I've not had a bad body image day in years, over a decade now. And again, I'd be told it's unrealistic. And I was like, don't get me wrong. I've had bad body image thoughts, but when I have that thought, my next thought is, oh, I need to send that email or, oh, I should go, I should go brush my teeth. I do not give that thought any time. I can't control my thoughts. I can control what I do next. And when I think a thought like, oh my God, there's so much cellulite on my thighs, it's as if my brain has decided to say something like, you have blue hair. 
I literally think it's so untrue that I'm like, cool, that's just another, your brain says rubbish every day. This is what people don't realize. We just buy into some of the rubbish and we ignore some of the other rubbish. So if your brain starts imagining you as a bunny and jumping around, you're like, oh, well, that's a weird dream or like a weird daydream, you move on. Whereas it's only when there's a grain of truth that you hook onto and you spiral that thought. So you go, oh, I have so much cellulite on my thighs. No wonder no one loves me. No wonder I'm single. Then it turns into an hour of your day. Whereas I have thoughts, but I probably have 15,000 thoughts a day. So <laughs> it's one in 15,000. That makes so much sense. And I feel like I'm going to use that now in my own life. So you are a public figure in whatever way you describe that now, where you have a lot of people who are engaging with the image you put out of yourself and there are a lot of people out there for whom you know they have a few hundred followers or they just have their friends following them on TikTok but we're all inundated with people's judgments of the the presentation we create right like not even ourselves it's the presentation we put out there and are you able to do the same thing when someone leaves a comment about what you say or how you look where you can just say well it's just one comment out of thousands or does it stay with you Honestly, it is, those are the easiest comments to deal with. The things that are really hard to deal with as a public figure, I hate that term, but it's the only one I can really use, is the comments about my personality. When someone thinks I um, don't have positive intentions, that really hurts. When I launched Scar Not Scared, like the moment before I clicked that button, I was like, what is the worst thing someone could say to you? And I was like, you're ugly, you're fat. And I was like, great, I've been saying that to myself my whole life, moving on. Like, <laughs> so... I like every time I just remember when when I was I, I was doing awful things like reading the comment section of the Daily Mail uh, which is even what the Daily Mail editor told me not to do when my scar not scared campaign came out she was like we're gonna publish this article but please don't read the comments and I went and read the comments anyway that's all it was ugly and fat and I I went to the comment section and I went well, at least they're not talking about the scars the whole point of the campaign was scars and the only insult you could give me was about my fat that meant you weren't insulting my scars. So that was the intention of the campaign. So I was really happy with that. And I think the reason why it just doesn't affect me is because it's my job to know I'm beautiful. It's no one else's job. You don't need to agree with me. I don't care whether you agree with me or not. It doesn't impact my day until I take that opinion inwards. But frankly, like, I truly believe that so much of uh, the perception of an influencer, I guess, is actually... Um, from your own insecurities so it's your own judgment of yourself that you then project on other people because frankly like as a person who has 400,000 followers over platforms I've never had a follower say to me oh why aren't you wearing makeup for your Instagram stories no one cares about you as much as you think you do they do and when you are insecure unfortunately you are the person who is most conscious of what you look like I have never sat on an interview with someone and gone oh they turned up without makeup that's so unprofessional of them but I might have that thought if I was insecure about the fact I wasn't wearing makeup that makes a lot of sense was this always your relationship with social media did you have to get to that point was there ever a period like we all probably know young people people who see faces like I've definitely had that feeling of like I don't look like any of the faces in my feed any of the bodies in the feed in my feed knowing full well that I have no concept of what their lives are like right all I'm getting is a snapshot and also I'm like oh wow I'm not like them I'm different is different bad did you ever 
did you have to go through that journey or had you gotten past that moment at 15 when when you had that realization well i think it it comes in waves so i remember what it was maybe in august i scratched my eye and couldn't wear contacts and i had to be on a red carpet that evening and not only could i not wear contacts i wasn't allowed to put makeup on and I called up my PR and was like, I've just scratched my eye. I'm going to the eye doctor right now. I'm hoping I'm going to be like done in time. But just a heads up, I'm going to have to wear glasses and I can't wear makeup. And she was like, why are you coming to the red carpet? You just scratched your eye. And I was like, oh, don't care about that. Like, I'll be there as long as I can make it in time. And it was just, there was no part of me that was like, I'm going to cancel. Was I happy about it? No. Would I have preferred and been more comfortable in contacts? Yes, I prefer... I prefer existing in contacts, but it's been six months and I'm still not allowed to wear contacts. I hate it. Every morning I hate it when I put my glasses on, but it doesn't stop me from doing anything. So if you aren't able to be have that flip of the switch moment that I had when I was 15 years old, all that matters is you go and do it anyway. It doesn't matter what you're worrying about in your head. I was on that red carpet going, great, I look completely a mess compared to everyone around me. Everyone else has professional hair and makeup. I haven't even put a comb through my hair. Like, I had those thoughts, but I was there. And that's all that mattered. I didn't miss out on my life. I didn't miss out on a great evening. I had time with people who I really enjoy talking to. And I, I stuck to my commitment because, frankly, what I look like matters less than me being there. And I think that's where what matters to you is what creates the actual change in your life so if you if you want to sit out of life then sure go for it but you're going to be lying on your deathbed regretting it I think ultimately that's where it comes back to my scars because behind those scars are 15 surgeries where I'm very acutely aware of how uh short our lives are and so in those moments I think the reason why I had that flip of the switch moment and it hasn't really changed since is because I am just so aware of when you go through an experience like mine it's really impossible to not have broader perspective of what matters and what doesn't and I've had actual near-death experiences enough to know that you do not think about what you look like at any point while you're dying what you think about is all the times you said no because you were worrying about what you looked like so i was thinking about how i said no uh to going to a dance class with all my friends because i didn't want to be the fat girl in dance class i remembered um saying no to a card game which i love playing cards um because it was raining and it was cold outside and that was my only reason and you're lying in a hospital bed going what a ridiculous reason why didn't you go you're now stuck and bedridden so when you have that broader perspective, what you look like just falls so low on that list. That, that, that really resonates with me. I have had experiences like health conditions and ending up in hospital and I had to go through the journey myself. And you talked about this in your TED talk of like, I, I for a long time, especially when I was younger, had the feeling of my body is imperfect and everyone else's body is functioning just fine. Yeah. It took me such a long time to recognize I was very grateful to be alive and also I was like, well, they've, they've got bodies where they, they don't have to like worry about all the stuff that I do. And eventually I was like, oh, but it's actually like kind of incredible that my heart beats at the right time and my like lungs do their thing and my legs move and my arms, like it's everything works and my body is keeping me alive. Yeah. And that's, that's the beautiful, powerful bit. And I'm, you talked about that in your, your TED talk as well. And that was the moment where I stopped and I like, I teared up. I was like, oh, 
the, the opposite of being alive is being dead, right? Like at least yeah. my body is keeping me alive. And I'm, I'm curious about how you got to that point. And if there was, if that was something that happened young or if that was something that was a journey for you. I think when it comes to that, being really honest, I cried this morning over my limitations. Like I still get frustrated with that much more so than what I look like. I don't really think about that anymore, but I have had the worst health year I've had in probably a decade and it's been frustrating. And in a way, I look back at that TED talk and go, yeah, no wonder you could look at it positively because you hadn't had a bad health year in like seven years when you gave that TED talk. But it it took me off guard because it hasn't happened in a decade. And I'm so lucky with my medical record that it took that long. But this year has been hard. I've had two bouts of COVID and a lot of that has triggered like every issue under the sun, including my eyes. Um, but this morning I was having a cry because, and I just let myself cry, I let myself feel it because I was like, I am so sick of going three steps forward and then five steps back. Like it feels like every time I get ahead on my health, I'm slipping backwards. And the reason why I was crying this morning was because yesterday I fell asleep on the tube with my phone in my hand. And I was like, what is wrong with me that like, I can't even stay awake anymore. So I have those, uh, the reason why I'm saying that is because I think it's important to be real. And when you're talking earlier about like, there are those middle phases where you just exist. I'm definitely in one of those phases right now. And I'm actually calling it my wintering, which um, is from this wonderful book by Catherine May. But I'm trying to slow down because I don't have a book that I'm writing at the moment. And I'm trying to actually give my body and my mind a chance to rest. And as much as I let myself cry this morning, part of letting your body rest and being kind to your body is on one hand feeling all your emotions, which is what I did this morning, but also not beating yourself up for it. On, I can have hold both thoughts that this is so frustrating and I'm so annoyed that my body's not where it used to be, first of all, but also is something that other people never have to worry about. But I can also hold the thought of, I'm grateful to my body because it's doing its best and it's really trying. And this year it's had a really tough year of having to fight everything under the sun. But when you almost view your body as a person, you're like, your body is doing so much. And so when I feel that frustration, I try to not aim that frustration at my body. I aim the frustration at this is just an unlucky year this is it's annoying that this is happening but I'm not annoyed at my body and I think that's where the distinction lies for me that that makes a lot of sense and it's it's also interesting in that like I have to keep reminding myself of this if we're all gonna die right we're all gonna like none of us is immortal we all have something will happen at some point and it's just a, a when it happens and how it affects you which is hard in some ways because our culture and our society we don't talk about illness very much we don't talk about living with our mortality very much yeah and I think it I have quite a morbid sense of humor because of my experiences and I reach I'm acutely aware of it every time I make a joke that is quite morbid on how the room reacts to it that I'm like oh okay you guys haven't had those brushes with death that I've had. So to me, it's a little bit funny. Whereas to everyone else, it's like, oh, that's dark or that's deep. And I'm like, and it's, it's, it's fine to joke about it, but it makes me even more aware that like, we're just all very lucky to be alive. And I think even if you can't love your body, there needs to be a level of respect and gratitude um, for what it does every day. And yes, it 
There are so many things I've not been able to do this year because my body and its limitations. And on the same hand, like with my medical record, I'm lucky to be alive. And so that's what I always come down to is that whatever I can do is more than I could have done at 19, more than I could have done at 11. And it might be three steps forward and five steps back. But at some point, I'm going to... This is actually where before you said, oh, was it a linear process upwards? Like when it comes to my fitness and my health, that's never going to be upwards process. I think it had been so upward for so long, I'd lost sight of that. And this year was a crash down to earth to realize that um, unfortunately I'm one of the bodies that don't have it straightforward when it comes to my health, but I make do with what I've got and I'm grateful for what I've got so far. That that's really lovely and it, I'm, I'm, this is not even a, a question I thought I'd ask you but I'm curious now about in a body like yours where you are there there, there are years and months where you'll have the, the ups and downs how has how has that affected your relationships in terms of like do you do you have the conversations before it happens do you just anticipate that when it happens you'll have the conversation and you surround yourself with kind and loving respectful people who will understand like how do you navigate that I think I got rid of all the people who uh, weren't so kind around my illness and especially in the school years, there were many people who weren't so kind around my illness. And what was really refreshing is when I went into university, the first time I got ill, I was like, oh, this is what decent people should treat you like. Because I was just like, I was so apologetic and they were like, don't worry, you go have a nap. We were in the middle of pre-drinks. So they were like, you go have a nap. We'll pick you up on the way out to the club. And I realised that my illness didn't need to be this huge obstacle. It was only that the people in my life were making it that obstacle. And yes, I missed out on pre-drinks, but I was still on the night out. Um, And so with a lot of that, I think there's a narrative in society that illnesses make you a burden especially when it comes to dating life as well that illnesses are um are a reason that makes you undateable and I had bought that lie and what was worse was the first guy I ever liked uh ghosted me because I went into hospital and so it confirmed that narrative and it took me many years to realize it's um (laughs) one of my friends I talk about this in my first book one of my friends calls it I don't know if I can say this word but he he calls it my dickhead filter because um you can't you know that you aren't getting a decent person when they bail on you because you've gone into hospital any decent person wouldn't do that but I think because I was still so insecure about my surgeries more than my scars because I actually found it really difficult to talk about my surgeries long after I accepted my scars. Um, I I would always say, well, I can understand why he would bail. If I got the choice, I would bail too. Meaning if I didn't have to go through this, I wouldn't go through this. Not realizing those are two separate things. Witnessing someone going through it is not a hard task. Like, well, it's not as hard a task as actually going through it. So I would be like, well, I wouldn't want to go through it. So if I had a choice, I wouldn't be here right now. So of course he's not there. And it took many years of um, realizing that actually that's not a reason to not love someone and how silly that is. And the word burden is so cruel and so unkind and it's specifically used for chronically ill people. Um, And thankfully I have an incredible boyfriend who has been wonderful and it's almost been like peeling the layers of the onion of like 
telling him that I have chronic illnesses, but being in a phase of my life where it really wasn't active or a problem. And then four months into it, like, oh, getting my first headache and he witnessed that. And then eight months into it, um, getting headaches nearly like four or five times a week. And then nine months into it, me having a migraine in the middle of a house party we were throwing and him having to kick everyone else out. And then him having to witness my first brain scan in 10, 10 years and me crying in the shower and all of the stuff that comes with it. But with every obstacle that I'm like, this is the one where he's gonna run. And like, I don't I don't even blame him for it. He never runs. And it. I think it was the one where I just had my first brain scan and I was crying in the shower. And um, like, he just opened the shower door, came in and hugged me and I was like, you're so wet. <laughs> like completely enclosed and I was just like I don't think you're leaving <laughs> and I think it was just it's so strange because when someone oh I'm gonna cry but like <laughs> when someone loves you in a way that you're not sure you can be loved and you're not sure like all society's so busy telling you you're plus size you're this you're all the reasons why you don't have a boyfriend or you don't have the lover you want or whatever and then someone comes in and just does the exact opposite it is the most healing thing um and I think sometimes our society, especially now, has always emphasised, like, you have to love yourself before you love someone else. And I most definitely did love myself before I got into this relationship. But I also think we need to rebel against this idea of hyper-independence of, like, you're the only way you can teach yourself to love yourself is by sitting in a room alone and learning that. Because actually, some of the most powerful ways I learned to love myself was being surrounded by people who loved me when I couldn't love myself. And um it was it it was this idea that i think um i've always been told i was a very difficult person growing up like not even because of i just my personality i'm like i'm very boundaryed i'm very like opinionated all of these things and it was just this moment of being like this is me societally at my most difficult and it does not even phase you um and there are people out there and I truly believe there are people out there that exist for everyone um but I don't think you find it unless you believe that is possible it, it sounds a lot like it's like a parallel to the the journey you went on with yourself of like understanding that you are you right you are not just your your scars are part of you and your surgeries are part of you and your body is is you but also you are you at the core and it sounds like you went on a parallel journey with your boyfriend as well of recognizing like here are all the things that you you think are societally difficult yeah you are you and you're lovable and of course he's gonna love you for that but I think we sometimes have this idea that like you have the bulk of you you have what you show everyone else and then you might show like 10% more to your friends and then 10% more to your loved ones and your family and whatever else but there's still that 10% you don't ever show anyone and I actually found what the most liberating thing was showing of a hundred percent and being like this is my messy chaotic self this is me at my worst this is me at my like saddest at my angriest all of this and that encompasses me me at my saddest moment doesn't make up the whole of me but is an important part of me that I like I'm a big crier I cry all the time and I don't need to um soften that in a way for me to be accepted and I think that actually is 
uh, the definition of love and actually that's why I'm so passionate against body shame as well because I think the opposite of love is shame but I think what love actually is is accepting someone for who they are whether that's their body their illnesses uh, and not wanting to change them in any way it also harkens back for me to what you what you have talked and written about in terms of you have your specific experience, I have mine, and also all of us have a shared, there's so much shared humanity, right? Like you showing 100% of yourself, expecting that maybe perhaps someone will be surprised, but also we're all human. And so the other person is probably feeling some versions and some shades of that and has never felt safe enough to show that either. Yeah. And suddenly that recognition and even in the shame, right, whatever kind of body, the, the example that stuck with me and something you had written was about sex with the lights on, right? Like yeah. that's not something that people are accustomed to doing or people who like walk past a mirror and refuse to look at it. It's yeah. universal in that we're all dealing with, there is no perfect body. And because of that, we all think our bodies are imperfect. But I think there's also a piece of it where you have to be willing to turn the light on to see whether they're going to stay for it. And so, yes, you will always think they want the lights off unless you're the person brave enough to actually try to turn the lights on yourself. And it was almost the same in that shower moment where, like, I could have pretended like nothing was wrong. I could have heard him coming and stopped crying. I could have done a million things to hide what was actually going on, said I stubbed my toe or something. But in order for you to actually receive that love, you need to let yourself be that vulnerable. And in that vulnerable moment, it is really scary because they can leave and then they're leaving you at your most vulnerable but actually that is when love feels the strongest is when you are that vulnerable but actually you are received and that love is held rather than abandoned but you have to take the risk that they might just walk away and if they walk away my first thought is good riddance like I'd rather know sooner than later yeah were you always this comfortable being this vulnerable after that first guy who ghosted you, that awful first guy who ghosted you, was it? Did it take time to slowly like show the layers of yourself to to new people, or was it something that you recognized you just had to do, and you were like, okay, here I am. I think I did the opposite. So I think previously I was an oversharer. I think it's what happens when you have no boundaries, and you might be a people pleaser and a pushover, but you're also an oversharer because you think that's the way you get people to like you. And so I would share my whole life with everyone and uh, people who hadn't earned my trust. And a lot of those guys were people who had proven to me to not be trusted and I would open my heart and then get even hurt, more hurt in the process. And one of the biggest things I learned with boundaries is um, to slowly let people in and to trust that I don't need to... A lot of the time when you're dumping all your most vulnerable information on a stranger you've just met, it's basically you saying, this is your chance to run. Are you gonna run? Because if not, you're hooked. And it's not the way to form a healthy relationship, in platonic or romantic. And so actually I had to go the other way of learning. No, not everyone deserves your vulnerability. And um, by the time I was crying in the shower with my boyfriend, um, there had been so many points in the past which he'd proven to have all the moments I mentioned before, like the first headache, the first brain scan, all of these things that me at my most vulnerable was a baby step forward because he'd already passed all the other moments. I think if I had launched into that in our first relationship, that would actually be the complete opposite and would be very unhealthy. Um, and 
close to something like trauma dumping. And it, it makes sense that like life is life is a collection of moments. I'm stating the obvious, but the moments add up with time, right? Where yeah. you're both being vulnerable, I imagine, with each other as well, constantly and like building that trust. Yeah, and I think there's also an unlearning around that vulnerability is weakness. I think uh, I'd been single for eight years, so I had very much learned that I had to do everything on my own um, and that I I really had to let someone in which sounds a lot harder than you think when you've been single for eight years. Um, and yeah, it, it's that moment of realizing I can do it on my own. If he walks out right now, I'll be fine. Um, I'll be really sad, but I'll be fine and I will survive it. Um, but I don't have to do it on my own. And actually sometimes the braver thing is letting someone in and not being the superhero who can do everything alone. Cause that leads to quite a, insular life I, that really resonates with me the bravery of letting someone in because it's it's scary right as you said if you're you're being your most vulnerable self and you're giving people the opportunity to see you and decide if they want to be there or not yeah exactly um so i know we're running out of time and the the name of this series is little revolution so i'm going to be very cheesy here where we ask everyone about what little revolutions do you think people can make in their own lives what little things like the the daily things, the ordinary things, and you've talked about a lot of them, but when you think about your own experience and perhaps experiences of friends or people you've coached in terms of how people can start to change their relationship with their bodies, um, accept and love potentially their bodies, what what does that look like for you? I, I would go back to that 15-year-old thing. I think stop talking about your body so much. Stop thinking about your body so much. When you think a thought about your body, think about what else you need to do in your day and do, go do that. Um, when you give your brain a task to do, whether it's replying to an email, or go make a cup of tea, or go do five jumping jacks, whatever it is, you are telling your brain that creating that thought doesn't have the result that it wants it to. So you can have bad body image thoughts, but stop vocalizing them, stop talking about it, stop turning it into the way that you bond, especially with your female friends, because a lot, we are all guilty of sitting around in a room and going, oh, my thighs are fat, no, I, my thighs are fat, oh, I need to lose weight this Christmas, all of these things. And what we think we're doing is we're being more liked by our circle because we have um, put ourselves down, but that's another small thing. Stop um, this self-deprecating humor, it's awful, it's really bad for your self-esteem, and your brain doesn't know you're joking, and it's not a joke and it's not funny. That is some great advice. Um, is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? No, that was a great interview. I loved it. Thank you for listening. And thank you so much to Michelle for joining us. Check out our show notes for how to follow Michelle. This episode was brought to you by Frida. Our producers are Claire Richardson and Abisoye Adelusi. And I'm your host, Masuma Ahuja. Please don't forget to follow Little Revolutions wherever you listen to podcasts and to leave us a review. It really helps.